0: Let's pray before we get underway. Heavenly Father, as we went last week, uh, we ask You that You might fill us with the knowledge of Your will, uh, according to all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that we might walk worthy of You, so that we might live fully pleasing to You, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in our knowledge of You. And we pray You might do that through Your Word tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week I was talking to someone who uh, here at church actually who's just been to the Grand Canyon and it uh, made me think of when I went to the Grand Canyon when I was about 19 uh, and we were, uh, I was travelling to America, I was going across the East Coast to visit uh, a friend over there and their family. Uh, and anyway, I had the chance to go to the Grand Canyon but it was only for like two hours. So, I sort of got off the plane, got on a bus and then had two hours once we got there. And when we got off the bus, uh, there was just mist everywhere. It was the middle of winter, and you couldn't see a thing. So I'd paid all this money to fly on a plane, travel on a bus, and stand in the mist, and I could have been standing anywhere in the world. It wouldn't have mattered. Uh, do you know how disappointing that is? Especially when you're a university student, and you've just paid that much money. Uh, but then just before we were due to leave, the wind changed. And it was like the Red Sea parted, and the mist opened up, And suddenly you could look down and there was the Grand Canyon in front of you to see. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but pictures don't do it justice. It's massive. Uh, And it's one of those sort of places in the world where as you look at it, you get a sense of your smallness, because it's so massive, you you realise how insignificant we are compared to this sort of wonder of God's creation. Uh, So much so that no painting or even a photo could really capture it. And I find this passage of Scripture does the same thing. There are some passages of Scripture that I really struggle to preach on uh, and this is one of them. Uh, It's not the controversial or the difficult passages, I actually quite enjoy preaching on those, There's something perverse in my personality but uh, this one, it's just, it is so amazing in what it is telling us about God and what He has done for us in Jesus. It is so incredible that I genuinely think, who am I to communicate this? Who am I to to open up this part of God's Word with you? Sort of like a painter at the Grand Canyon, sort of thinking, who am I to paint this? Just come and look at it. This passage is meant to blow your mind. That's what it's meant to do. And the only reason it won't blow your mind is if you're just sort of not engaging with it, if you're just ho-hum about it. But if you actually have the Bible open in front of you and want to look at it and want to grapple with it, it will blow your mind. That is what it's meant to do. It's meant to take your brain and stretch it to breaking point. That's what it's designed to do and it will make you see that however wonderful you think Jesus is, however amazing you think Jesus is, your picture is way too small. That's what it's designed to do. However incredible you think Jesus is, you don't know half of it. One of the reasons Paul wrote this letter was to help these Christians, 2,000 years ago, and us, like them, to help us stick with the gospel. So, look at how he puts it at chapter 2, verse 4. You can flick on a little bit, or I think I've, I've printed it on your outline. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I am saying this, meaning the things we're looking at this week, so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. See, our world is constantly telling us that the gospel is foolish, There are the direct attacks from, you know, people who want to say, how can you believe in a man who rose from the dead? How can you believe that? Or or more commonly today, how, how can you believe in the outdated morality of the Bible? But then there's the more indirect message we just sort of take in all the time, which just says, don't take it too seriously, don't take Jesus too seriously. And then there's just that distraction of just getting caught up in the things of this world. We all know, and if that's not bad enough, then there's false teachers within the church who who come and actually share a different gospel, say, yeah, I know you've heard about Jesus, but I want to tell you another message. All these ways, we are tempted to drift or walk away from Jesus. We all know people who seemed to know Jesus, like we do, but now they are not following Jesus. And even from within our church here, you will know people who, at some point, seem to know Jesus, just like you do, but now they are not following Jesus. And you know people who seem to get it, but but now they live their life as if Jesus doesn't exist. And the thing is, that is not a new phenomenon. Right from the beginning, Christians were tempted to give up on Jesus. So, how does Paul encourage us not to do that? How does he encourage us to stick with the one true gospel? Well, he could have done that by going through every other possible false teaching you will ever hear and then telling you what's wrong with it. It would be a very long letter if he did that. He could have pointed out the problems with every other way of thinking about the world and showed how how the Christian way is better. He could have done that, but it would have been very long. So, he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I'm just going to blow your mind with just how incredible the true Jesus is. And if you get even 50% of what he says about Jesus in this passage, then you will never give up on Jesus. If you understand and grasp for yourself even 50% of what he says, you would just think it would be stupid to give up on Jesus. Because nothing, no philosophy, no religion, no other way of thinking can compare to the true Jesus Christ we meet in the Scriptures. So, come with me. The first point he makes is that Jesus is not just some great teacher... Jesus is God revealing Himself to us. Look at verse 15, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. No one has seen God, God is Spirit, He's invisible, until Jesus came. And then, at that point, when people looked at Him, they saw God represented on earth. That's made even clearer if you come down to verse 19, where it says, for God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. See, in the Old Testament, God symbolically dwelt in His temple. So, if you wanted to meet with God, you went to Jerusalem and you went into the temple and that was where God dwelt, in all His fullness. But now, it says, you meet God in Jesus. And more than that, look at it there, all His fullness dwells in Him. See, Jesus isn't just sort of like a shadow of God. He's not sort of like a a 2D cutout of God. All of God's power is in Jesus. All of God's might is in Jesus. All of God's grace is in Jesus. All of God's love is in Jesus. Whatever else you can think of that is part of God and who He is, it is all in Christ. Now, just as your mind grapples with that, he makes the next point. And that is, if Christ is God, then He was there from the beginning. He was there from before the creation of the world and more than that, He was there doing the creating. So, my second point, you'll see it on your outline, Jesus is the centre of all creation. Look at verse 15 again. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, when it says He is the firstborn, what does that mean? It doesn't mean He was born at all. Because Jesus is God, He wasn't created, He has always been. God has always been, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's a title. See, the firstborn is the one who inherits everything. It's the one who inherits it all. So, we might say, He is the heir over all creation. See, in our modern world, usually when someone dies and they read out the will, 99 times out of 100, it gets divided equally amongst the kids. And when it doesn't, what happens? The kid who hasn't got as much takes the other kids to court, that's the modern world, sadly. That is not the case in most cultures. If you want to understand how most of the world and most of history has done it, read a Jane Austen novel, or if you can't quite bring yourself to do that, watch the movie, you know. You see, in most cultures, what happens, the firstborn inherits the lot. That's why in Jane Austen novels, the first guy gets the title and all the money, the second guy becomes a soldier, what happens to the third son? becomes like me, a minister, there you go, because they can't find anything else for Him to do. But you see, the firstborn, everything is for Him. So, why is everything for Jesus? Well, look at verse 16. It says, for everything was created by Him. He made it. He made it all and by everything, He means everything. It says, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. It's hard for us to get our minds around this because we sort of think, this is everything. We think this physical world is all there is, but our physical world is just one part of God's creation. There is a spiritual realm as well, what we call the heavens. And so, his point is, think of everything you can see. Think of Sydney Harbour, think of the Grand Canyon, think of the mountains, think of the ocean, think of everything. Christ created it all. But then, think of the things you can only imagine. These things you've only read about in the Scriptures, the heavens, the angels, whether you can see it and touch it or not, He created it all. It doesn't matter what it is. And more than that, look at what it says next. It says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, Now that could be talking about earthly kingdoms and authorities, like presidents and, and kings and queens, or it could be talking about heavenly powers, like demons and angels, it doesn't really matter. The point is, even the ones who think they are in charge, even the ones who think this world is theirs, Christ created them too. And more than that, I sound like the guy on the TV ads, you know, but wait, there's more. But look at the next part, it says, all things have been created through Him and for Him. See, it is all for Jesus. The whole world was made for His benefit. You were made for Jesus and His glory. I was made for Jesus and His glory. And so, it all gets pulled together in verse 17, look there, it says, He is before all things and by Him all things hold together. You see, our world only turns because Jesus wants it to. The sun only came up this morning and only sets tonight because Jesus wants it to. You only live because Jesus wants you to. You only breathe because Jesus wants you to there is nothing and no one that is not His, there is nothing and no one that does not owe Him everything. You see how massive that is? As Christians, we take it for granted, so you just sort of and they go, yeah, of course. But do you see how massive that is? Just for a moment, be an African congregation and answer me. Do you see how massive that is? Yes. Now, there are some ideas in some of those verses we could explore for hours and never really grasp them. It's sort of like the castle, I hope you get the vibe. You know, this, this is the one we worship. This is the one who is our Saviour and Lord. And so, the point is, why on earth would you ever want to follow someone else? Why on earth would you ever want to give anyone else other than Him the glory? But, of course, there is a problem with our world, because even though we are made for Jesus... We don't naturally live that way, do we? We live as if the creation is made for us. That's how humanity lives, not for him. Jesus is the head over everything, we don't treat him as the head over everything. The majority of the world treats it as if we are the head of everything. And so this creation made by and through and for Christ, it's broken because of our sin, Which is why the next part is so important, which I've called in your outline there, Jesus is the center of the new creation. It's like there's this big change of gears at verse 18. When I learned to drive a car, I learned to drive on an automatic and then when we got married, we bought a manual car. So, Victoria had to, in our like second week of marriage, teach me to drive a manual car. I can tell you that's not a good lesson in how to have a successful early marriage. But anyway, (laughs) uh, and for that reason, whenever I change gears, it's never particularly smooth. If you've ever driven with me, you just sort of hold on to the sides of the seat. When I change the gears, you jump forward like that, I'd just like to keep you on your toes. Well, it's sort of like that here, it's like there's this Phil Colgan change of gears, here he is talking about Jesus as the head over everything, all creation and then he says, he's also the head of the body, the church and we sort of think, well, of course he is, you, you know, if there is one thing we know Jesus is the head of, it's the church because that's sort of like the religious department of the world, So, it can see a bit of a, so what, sort of statement, but actually, this is so important because we don't realise how important the Church is. We don't realise how important this group of people, that's what the Church is, we don't realise how important this group of people is to God's plans. See, it's not like He's saying, Jesus is the centre of all creation and He's the head of the little religious part of it. Now, He is saying, the Church is the start of God's new creation, What do I mean by that? You see, this creation is going to burn away under God's judgment. Sadly, people who do not accept Jesus will face that same judgment. But then God will do something wonderful and new. He will make a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, without all the consequences of human sin. There will be no pain, there'll be no sin, there'll be no death. And He has started building... That new creation already in His church. He is saving a people for His very own, who are going to be the humanity of that new creation. See, the church is the start of God's new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And His point here is, well, just like Jesus is the centre of this old creation, well, He is the head and the centre of the new creation as well. Because, look at the rest of verse 18, it says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. Of course, it's talking about Jesus' resurrection, when He rose from the dead. And when Jesus did that, He wasn't just proving He was God. Sometimes I talk to people and they say, "Ah, when Jesus rose from the dead, that's why He did it, to prove that He was God. He does that, but that's not why He did it. He wasn't even just showing that His death had paid for our sins. Now He was starting something new. He is the first of many, the New Testament calls Him the first fruits of the resurrection. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that one day we too will be raised to be a part of that new creation. And when we are raised like Christ, we will never die. We will be perfect like Him because of His death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection is the moment... On which all of history hinges. Just look from verse 19 again, it says, "...for God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile everything to Himself, by making peace through the blood of His cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven." Often, when we talk about the cross of Christ, what Jesus did in His death, we focus on what He did for us, don't we? So we often talk about it that way we say jesus died for my sins we talk about how he paid the price for me he saved me he won my forgiveness and that is all true and that is wonderful and we'll see more about it in a moment but in jesus death and resurrection something bigger than that was happening you see sin has messed up more than just us It's messed up more than just humanity, it's messed up this whole world, it's even messed up the heavens, it's messed up everything. Our world is cursed. Things are not meant to rust, things are not meant to to fade away, Uh, whole towns are not meant to be wiped out with floods and bushfires, that is all because of the fall. It's all because of human sin. And so, when Jesus died on the cross and dealt with sin... And when he rose from the dead and defeated death, that wasn't just to save a new people for God, the church. That was the moment that he started the new creation, where everything will be reconciled to God. That is, everything will be restored to how God wants it to be. Jesus is the beginning and the center of all of that. That is the one you worship, that is the one we follow. And that is wonderful, and that is mind-blowing. If you've only picked up half of what I've shared from this passage tonight, then I hope you say, why would I ever give up following Him? Why on earth would I listen to Muhammad? Or why on earth would I listen to Buddha? Or why on earth would I ever listen to some other human teacher or some latest atheist, when I know the One who is the image of the invisible God? Why on earth would I get distracted by the things of this world and chase after money or or property or, or an ungodly relationship or whatever it is that distracts people, when I know the one who this whole creation was made by and was made for? Why would I slide away from the fellowship of His body when I know this is the beginning of the new creation? Why on earth would I slide away from the fellowship of the church when I know Christ is the head of it and this is His new creation, that is the point of this passage. Having said all those mind-blowing things about Jesus, He then comes back at the end to you and Jesus, and for that matter, me and Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, yes, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, but He is also the one who loves you. That insignificant person, I'm sorry to call you, but it's me as well, that insignificant person who you are. I'm not belittling you at that point, it's just true. Who are we compared to Him, and yet He loves us. And He is the one who loves you enough to die for you, to reconcile you to God. And that's the final heading there, you'll see it on your outline, Jesus and me, verses 21 to 23. So, look with me at verse 21. It says, "'Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds,' because of your evil actions. That is what you were before you knew Jesus. Look at that verse again. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. That is what any person, that's what you were and is what any person is now who does not trust in Jesus. We are alienated from the one who created us and who we were created for. We are unconnected from the one who gives us life and not innocently alienated, we are hostile in our minds. We consciously refused to see God for who He is and give Him the glory that He deserves. And we do that because we want to justify our evil actions. We want to live our way, we want to be selfish and we want to be self-centered and we want the things of this world more than we want the God who made the things of this world. Verse 21 is, I think, the clearest definition of what it is to be a sinner in the whole Bible. If you're a Bible underliner, underline that Bible. It is the clearest definition of the human condition apart from Christ in the whole Bible. But as you look at it, you might think, but hang on, I wasn't like that. You you might think, I, I wasn't antagonistic to God, I wasn't hostile to God, or you might think the non-Christians I know, they're not like that, they're not hostile to God, they're just apathetic, they just don't care. The Bible tells us that apathy is grounded in a hostility to God, the refusal to give God the honour He deserves. And then you might say, I wouldn't call my actions evil, I know evil people, they do those things you read in the newspapers, but I'm not evil... You know, I know there are some real sinners out there but I was just sort of a bit covetous and I was just a bit selfish. It is amazing how human beings will cling to this claim that we are basically good and just do some bad stuff despite all the evidence straight in front of our eyes, despite the evidence of history, despite the evidence in society, despite the evidence when we actually honestly look at our own hearts. That's why Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, You know, when Jesus said to Billy, you tell me you've never murdered anyone, well, tell me who hasn't hated someone in their heart. You tell me you've never committed adultery, well, tell me you haven't looked lustfully in your heart. No, this is what we all were and what all people are, apart from Christ. Alienated and hostile in our minds because of our evil actions. But then comes those wonderful words at the start of verse 22, but now but now something is different but now something has changed and it is not us who's changed it it's christ verse 22 but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death through his death jesus reconciles us to god we were alienated we were hostile but now jesus has knocked down that wall Between us and God. He doesn't go into the how of it here, how Jesus did it, how in his death he was paying the price for our sins, how in his death he was washing us clean by his blood, how he was standing in our place, paying the price for our sin. But because of his death, Jesus will present us to God holy and blameless. Because of his death, when it comes to that day when we stand before the judgment seat of God, he will not look at us and see our sin, He will not judge us as we deserve, but He will welcome us as His children. Not because we've pulled our socks up and changed ourselves, we, we do that now in response to what He's done for us. No, not because we've changed, but because Jesus died for us. Now, just think how amazing that is. You've sort of, in the tiredness at the end of the day, sort of switched off, switched back on now, just think how amazing that is in fixing the whole universe, in fixing all of creation, instead of doing it the easy way and just wiping us out and saying, I'll start again, Jesus saved you and He saved me. Insignificant little me and you. Isn't that incredible? But of course, it's not automatic. Jesus did it all, but we have to accept His wonderful gift, which is why with verse 23. Verse 23 starts with the word, if. So, look again from verse 22, actually. It says, but now He has reconciled you by His physical body through His death, if, indeed, you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you keep trusting Jesus, you are reconciled to God. If you do not shift from the gospel message you first heard, you are reconciled to God. That is, that He is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose for your salvation. There is no other way to be saved, That's why he says there, the last part, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He's saying, it's not like they've preached a different gospel in China to what they've preached in Europe. It's not like there's a different gospel for people who grew up in Islamic countries, from people who grew up in countries where the church is stronger. No, every person on earth needs to hear the same message. There is no other hope for salvation. Jesus is the way, there is no other way. And that means, if you are someone here tonight who has never trusted in Jesus, can I ask you to do it tonight? Do it tonight. What more do you need? Pray to God now and say, I was alienated from you but now I want to trust in Jesus. Now, I believe He is the one who reconciles me to you. But for the rest of us, I want to say, with the Apostle Paul, a very, very simple message. Stick with Jesus. Please never shift away from the hope of the Gospel that you have heard. Don't ever think that a person who used to trust in Christ is saved. This passage makes it very clear, it is only if you persevere in your faith, if you keep trusting Jesus, that you are saved. There is no hope for the person who used to go to church, who used to hang around with Christians, who used to say, I follow Jesus, but now Jesus is just something they used to do. The most important thing you need to do, and the most important thing you need to do for one another, is cultivate your faith in Jesus. There is nothing more important than that. The most important thing you need to do is keep clinging to Him keep listening to His Word, keep meeting together with His body as long as it's called today and encourage one another with His words. And I hope as you've seen this incredible picture of Jesus today, you are saying to yourself, of course. I hope as you've seen this incredible passage of Scripture, you have said, why on earth would I ever give up on the One who is the centre of all creation? And why on earth, what else can I do but trust Him? and follow Him and worship Him. I hope that's what you believe. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this incredible picture of our Lord. We thank You that He is the very centre of all creation and all things, including us, were made for Him and for His glory. But more than that, we thank You that by His death, He has reconciled us to You. And so we pray for anyone here who has never put their faith in Jesus, that tonight might be the night they do that. But for the many of us here who have, we pray that we would never turn away from Him. We would never be deceived by clever sounding arguments, but instead we would keep trusting in Jesus.